Welcome to Train Rush, your remote island denizen of train game podcasts. Apparently well socialised, seems like a nice guy, but there's just something a little bit odd about him. Brought to you today by Cray Taylor and Joe Reese, And shortly you'll work out why that introduction was so damned apt. Were you referring to me? It sounded like you were referring to me. It was directly you, Joe. It was. It's the random historical excerpts that come out during our game podcast about these strictly abstract games that have no setting theme or place. Well, you'd be uh, glad to know that I've got very little history to share with you. I did actually start to look up some history about the Isle of Man and just ended up reading about cats instead. Wow, fantastic, fantastic. So as if the podcast title itself wouldn't foreshadow the topic, Joe has foreshadowed the topic. Have I ruined the podcast? Have I... You've ruined the flow. Was there meant to be a big build-up? Well... Were we meant to be keeping some suspense here for the listeners? I was trying, Joe, but, you know, like a damp fart, we are now going to bimble along into the topic of de jour, 18 man by Ian Scrivens, or more to point, the 18-man public playtest on Board 18 by Ian Scrivens and Mr. Board 18. <laughs> so what is this episode, Craig? Is this a full analysis, or what are we doing here? Is this more a whistle-stop tour of the game? Well, I've played it 607 times during the 30-day period in which it was available, so I can provide you with every strategy, layer, and consideration including historical discrepancies to do with this title. Actually, I've played it twice, and there's some interesting stuff going on that's probably just worth a a flyby to whet the listener's appetite about a title they may or may not wish to keep an eye out for when it comes on the market. I think it's an interesting game, and it's probably the case that the majority of the listeners haven't played. Is that an assumption I can make? I don't know. I think that's a reasonable assumption. Let's put it this way. There'll be a subset of listeners who won't touch board 18 who won't have played this by volition of platform alone. So I had to I had to drag myself to the computer screen to even face this when you you suggested playing this. Oh, aren't you glad I did though? Yes. It is good. Cool. And stop recording. It's Good. So, just to set some context, this game is designed by the designer of 18 Island, the ever-loved, I say ever, you know, loved through one title probably actually, the ever-loved Ian Scrivens. And the game is as stingy as 18 Island in terms of tightness of money, but that stinginess is delivered through slightly different means. It's designed to be a short running title, circa two and a half hours face-to-face probably, so game night fodder, and it is designed for a low player count. This thing caps out at four players. It does, and it starts at two, although the designer suggests you won't get a very good experience with two, but here's a variant just in case you want to try it. Is two-player the 18xx equivalent of solitaire rules? Everybody at the Kickstarter's moaning at me about not having two-player rules, said the train game designer here have some even though they'll be rubbish compared to a game of battle line <laughs> i digress it might be it might be good as a rules learning exercise i don't know i often wonder with that as a thing like a part of me thinks that actually the teacher just be better off multi-handing the darn thing free player and getting fit to teach it as opposed to making two people have a tepid experience yeah i would say ian needs to stand up to these barking complaining fans of his and say no It will be three to four players. Draw the line, right? Because next they'll be asking for solo rules, and then they'll be asking for no player rules. And 
They want the thing automatic like a TV show. 18 Man, the TV series, and then where are we at? 18 Man, the Saturday morning cartoon. And playable in 18 minutes. Ooh, there's probably a group that could do that. <laughs> Maybe. Not yeah, us. Not us with a bored 18 spreadsheet, that's for sure. So, random rambling aside, shall we try and give our own versions of a distilled recipe, Joe? Yes. I can talk you through the main features, if you like. And then after point number seven that I've made, um, maybe the listeners can turn off if they've heard enough. Oh, okay. So Joe's seven-part recipe for stingy games set on remote islands. Let me just do the backing music. Macho, macho man. I want to be a macho man. There you go, Joe. That's your music. That's your theme tune. Yep, thank you. I'm ready. I'm ready. Go, I'm pumped go, up. go. In one. 18 Man is a mix of railway companies and mining companies. The mining companies generate revenue in a way which is different to the railway companies. The trains and the mining equipment are double-sided cards, so one purchase depletes the other. In two. It has a strange mix of incremental capitalization and full capitalization payment structures. In three. Companies must be floated in an order set randomly at the beginning of the game. In four. Share structure per company is determined by said random company order. In five. It has a tiny map and a very restrictive tile set. In six. You can be a president of a company with a single share. And in seven. It is designed to allow come from behind wins. Is is that enough? Can't be a bit of bully. Do you get the reference, Joe, or are you about 20 years too young for that? No, I did watch that. The cartoon cow thing and the darts. <laughs> the cartoon cow thing and the darts, my word. I guess you're about 50% more educated than our American listeners on the what joys of bullseye, so we shall move swiftly on. <laughs> the Isle of Man, this is my Taurus guide the Isle of Man has the largest narrow gauge railway network in the British Isles and with the several historic railways and tramways still in operation and in the 19th century the mines there were regarded as the richest oil mines in the British Isles so there you go we were meant to put disclaimers about risk of education when we put these things out just so we're clear you've just ambushed people with education I know the cow thing and mines what more can you need in a podcast? One of those was worth knowing. So, yeah, I mean, for me, right, if I was to say the kind of the influences, you know, I'm guessing a little bit here, the variable order thing, Ian Scrivens done that before with 18 Islands, which, you know, I guess we could talk to 1849 there as well, but Ian likes that. There's also a thing that, I'm not sure was hitting our seven point list because I was so busy doing the effects. A subset of private companies, sorry, special powers will feature in each game. So it's very much like 18 Island in that sense where you have a big menu of privates, but this game will feature private A, F and G, say. So there's a bit of game to game variability there. Whether that equals replayability, I don't actually know. I can't make that call off two plays, but Ian's not adverse to creating game to game instance variability. There's a 10 special abilities and during the game setup it is the number of players plus one which are optioned out at the very beginning of the game and you will secretly pick one of those special powers hand over the pile to the next person and they will pick one going all the way around and then you'll end up with one which you don't need and you throw that back into the box they cannot be sold to a player or a company they don't count towards your certificate limits and the player can decide which owned company to use the special ability so yeah so everybody ostensibly gets a choice but the last player gets the 
rubbishest choice and rubbishest is a word in the UK don't judge me I think calling them special abilities confuses matters more than it helps matters for me because they are privates and all but name they do make you feel like a superhero though the special ability oh do they knackers (laughs) I'll take the one that just gives me loads of cash Joe I'll tell you what they're not very exciting they're not completely wild I don't think there's terrain cost reductions there's reduced loan repayments. We'll talk about loans shortly. Maybe that was missing from my one through seven rundown. And there's some special tile placements, so nothing completely out of the ordinary. There's some lane special tiles. I don't know, I think you might underbuild that a little bit. It actually means there may be opportunity present on the board that there isn't present in other games. Oh, add this off-board here when you choose to. You might not be the only player accessing that, right? So I think that's actually more significant. But there is the big cash private, and that big cash private just seems rather good. Maybe it's because you don't have to be clever to use it. You just, like, pay your money and you go, I'll have big cash now, thank you very much. Whereas the other ones, it demands you think. I definitely chose the big cash in my first game because I did not want to think. There was so much other new stuff going on. Shall we talk to the loans? I'm going to tell a little story, if I may. Players in 18 man they'll start in debts and every stock round for their hundred dollar or sorry pounds initial capital for each stock round following the first one they will have to pay back seven pounds per 25 pounds that's the interest rate so the astute amongst you will realize that you have to pay back 28 pounds in the first sr following the first one i.e sr two point blah and that's quite tough because The map's quite poor, with dits that are worth 5, and towns that are worth 20, but they don't upgrade to 30 until green, and that could be hard work if people take the tile you want. And it's very hard to upgrade those doinks, because the restrictive track lay means that you have to access a new bit of track on the tile. This all sounds very depressing, and my tone of voice sounds awful, but it's because it's reasonably intense, and you've got this weight of debt hanging around your neck. But here's the thing. Those aren't the only loans available. So in future stock rounds, if you aren't doing very well and you haven't got enough cash, just like a real bank, if you're poor, it'll lend you more money. And if you've got lots of money, it doesn't want to touch you because banks work that way. And it's not a catch-up mechanism at all. And (laughs) yeah, you can take more money. And as long as you can make the money work for you more than £7 worth of debt, per set of operating rounds and this game works on a fixed 2OR to 1SR schedule then it's probably worth taking the loans in fact it's always worth taking the loans because unlike Age of Steam as long as you can make the darn loans work for you it'll be fine yeah the thing is the loans uh, can never be repaid so you're just paying off the interest although the value of the loans do count against the player's value at the end of the game sure but assuming that you're buying shares that are going forwards Joe and paying dividends (laughs) it's just a £7 offset per pair of ORs versus value otherwise wouldn't have been able to gain because you wouldn't have had the money ever anyway, right? So I think the loans are almost a fait accompli. Well, the, the way it works is that at the beginning of the share round, you establish a turn order, lease cash first. Then you pay your interest. Uh, if you're unable to pay, by the way, it's a £10 end game penalty for each £1 of interest you're unable to pay. And then all the players but the last player will get a choice to take a loan. So if you come in rich into the stock round you're not going to be able to take a loan but when i say rich 
you'll just be richer than the other players. You may come into the share round with the most money, but after the loans are taken, you may actually end up with less money than everyone else. And I sound quite damning of the mechanism. I think it's really good, actually. I think the ordering by player order gives the players who are ostensibly behind more opportunity to pick up plum shares, and we'll come back to that in a second. And then this is kind of like the sauce on top of the ice cream, on top of the sundae, right? Oh, and also, these guys have access to more free capital if they want it. I say free, it's not free capital we've already covered that they never feel like a millstone around your neck they never feel like dragging you down not really but there's that kind of power grid management right you don't want to be the richest player so you might manage your roots or your dividends so you do not come into the stock round as the richest player just so you can take a loan and become the richest player totally totally you might do a strategic withhold and withholding in this game is very much a inverted commas sensible thing this isn't an 1830 okay son you've got your free money buy the right trains grip the rails and i hope you don't have to buy a train out of pocket here we go <laughs> it isn't one of those this is very much a oh dear i am going to have to issue shares i'm going to have to withhold i'm going to have to make sure i buy the right shares at the right time to survive this company to the end of the game. And I think actually by not earning too much during the OR, you can concentrate on building up your long-term routes for later rather than going for the quick cash because you'll end up being the poorest person potentially in the stock round because everyone else can take loans. Well, there's something about playing games where total player value isn't necessarily the only indicator or too strong an indicator of position and player fortunes, right? And in this game, you can be going in with great company value and structural value, the right trains, the right routes, but personally not doing very well and just choosing when I'm going to release the breaks just now and you can see your wealth explode because you've been managing your company for later game payoff yes or to move trains around if you happen to be running two railway companies although i haven't seen a lot of train shuffling in this like we said number seven in my countdown that it's actually designed to allow these big comebacks and I don't want to make that capital flow puzzle sound trivial, right? Because it's not. It's not just a case of, oh, withhold, 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 all right, I've got the trains, I'm done. This game features the ability for companies to issue shares. And it has this kind of strange thing to my eye. I think I've seen it before on a Wolfram game, but that's by the by, where shares on the IPO don't pay anybody. Shares in the bank pool pay the company but the company can issue shares from the ipo into the bank pool for money so it's kind of double incentive i'm going to issue shares to give me money which will then give me trickle money it seems like a no-brainer except that the single shares don't come with any drawbacks you issue those into the bank pool all hunky-dory you get some money back bob's your uncle there's no risk if you dump one of the big shares into the bank pool well you actually take a price hit on you know in terms of your stock value and you receive the lesser amount on the shares yeah let's talk about those shares because they will be randomly set up at the beginning of the game as i said the share structure per company is determined by the random company order so you shuffle your companies there you go that's the order in which you have to float them by now the first company will have a 30 percent starting share followed by four single shares ending with another 30%. Now the second to fourth companies will have a 20% share followed by five single shares followed by another two and the fifth, sixth and seventh company will start with 
a four share certificate, a single, 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 and then a three share certificate at the end. So the incentives to start these companies change as the game goes on almost. Like the first one's a B&O type, so it comes with slightly higher density. You've got a nice certificate for your end game scoring because to be honest with you, share density will be a huge part of whether you win or lose in this, it seems. The middling game ones, they're kind of like, okay, I've only got a little bit of money. I want to start something. Two, one, one, one. That's a nice kind of structure. The end game ones are for when you're, I don't want to say drowning in cash because you never are in this game, but when you've got enough cash to start a company at full price and you just want to be able to get an end game engine without having to supplement it without a pocket cash, i.e. you want to keep all that value as share value. And here's the thing, when you're issuing these shares, making sure <laughs> that you don't uncover too dense a share, and I'll explain that now, is part of the fun, right? Because these shares, they have to be purchased in order. A bit like 1849, you can't buy that super dense share at the bottom of the stack until all the singles have been purchased through. So when you're issuing, each time you issue a little bit of money, ooh, I have some money, ooh, I have some trickle money, you're getting nearer and nearer and nearer to that super dense bottom share being available to snipe. And of course, your fellow investors would love to have one of those for their end game scoring. I think in our last game, out of a 12, 14 certificate limit, I had 22 shares. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. Because I started an end game company, I had a presidency, I had a few double shares in other people's companies, and it adds up. Yeah, well, I think one of the main puzzles in the game is working out which shares to issue, which to redeem, which shares to buy, and from where. So if you're buying from the IPO, the first share must be purchased first. Actually, that's true of the, the marketplace as well. So the first share must always be bought before any other shares. And the last share must always be the last share you buy from the IPO or the market. And those first and last shares are actually, I think, part of how people can make big comebacks, the super dense shares that can generate a lot of revenue and a lot of value at the end of the game. Yeah, which is, okay, so first and last share, I mean, you could just call them presidency share and preferred share, couldn't you? I wish the terminology was a bit snappier, but that's a whinge. I should probably feed that back in after all. That was what this was out there for. Dear listener, you have to remember part of our perspective is trying to play a game that involves shares in a certain order on a spreadsheet. This thing would be so much more playable inverted commas and i'd be able to give you a much purer truer feedback than i otherwise can with two plus one plus one plus two plus one <laughs> which one's the president's share i don't know just one of them yeah. <laughs> you know it's anywho whinge 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 i think um the terminology is different for a reason though because you only need to be the majority shareholder to be a president and the majority could be one single share while everyone else has zero so in effect there really isn't a president share in this game and there is there is a dance around buying these shares isn't there in the stock round in both in the operating round you could be issuing a share which is exposing the larger share ready for the next stock round which might be good if you've got priority or actually you might be revealing it for another player to snap up the same case is actually in the in the stock round well you know there's that big fat 30% share sitting behind that single share. Well, what do you do? Do we all just sit around not buying that single share? And sometimes that felt, for me, especially in a trailing position, like, what do I do? Do I do, I do nothing? Or should I buy that single share? Well, I'm just going to either hand it to Craig or uh, Jenny or whoever it is that you're playing against. I don't know. Joe, Joe, we can at least reference his name. 
Scotch Greg. I don't know for sure whether he wants us to reveal that we play games with him sometimes. I was, I was just trying to protect his uh, secret identity. By day, mild-mannered investment banker Greg Broggles is the honest president of the Isle of Man Railway Company, encouraging fellow investors to buy single shares in what appears to be a successful business venture. But by night, Greg strips out of his ordinary attire to reveal the skin-tight spandex beneath. Biceps bulging, triceps flexing, he becomes the Incredible 18 Man. We should probably cut that bit. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's great. I get to use this as a vainglorious exercise for my friends, Joe. That's that's how this works. So let's be honest here, right? You used the key word earlier, and my ears pricked up as much as I could through these big old rubbery cans. It was the word puzzle. And we had a little bit of a debate with a friend of ours, Jonathan, online, didn't we? In terms of our views and feedback on this. And he asked if it was a financial game. And it kind of is. But the key word you said earlier, which I think it feels more like, feels puzzly. The shares feels like a puzzle. It doesn't feel like a spreadsheet of me analysing red and black and looking at return on investment and going, oh, okay, actually that one's appreciating more. Maybe I should short this one because of this option here. Or maybe I should, I don't know, sell that so I can do a float storm. It felt very much a, ooh, do I want to expose that card or not? Bluffing puzzle kind of thing. It actually kind of... I felt it kind of brought me out of the experience a little bit. You could say a magic circle, weren't you, like a twit? I was not. I was only putting words in my mouth. I wasn't going to say anything about the magic circle. <laughs> magic circle cringe. You are you're kind of meddling with this order of where the shares are. There was a point in the game where I, I wanted to buy a share to expose one of the larger shares so that my company could issue it to get a boost of capital. And it kind of takes you out of the theme a little bit. Yes, it takes you out of the magic circle a little bit. I knew you'd say that. <laughs> I knew you'd say that. I called it. It is, I would say, it's an interesting puzzle, and I had fun with the puzzle, and the puzzle does have financial impacts, but it does feel very mechanical. It's not bad. There was other aspects of this title that interested me more than that, which is odd because it's actually probably one of the most important parts of the game. Let's go on to some of those other bits. I think we've probably expressed our thoughts well enough there, especially for a game that may even change before it gets released. It does feel very ready. I, I imagine maybe some of the numbers will be, you know, the prices of things might change slightly, but it, it did feel like a complete game. Oh, it feels eminently complete. Sorry, I, I don't want me to say it's a, it may change before it comes out to make it sound like it's half-baked. You know, Joe, some people will absolutely love that puzzle. Let's do the mining companies, because I think we've glossed over the mining companies, and I think they're probably one of the biggest features. They have a fixed position on the map, and they will mine into the map and get lots of minerals which will give you money and the amount of minerals that you're digging up will be based on two things it's based on the machines that you've got and how good they are at bringing up those minerals from the ground and giving you money that way but also the value of your runs or your operation is also based on the number of railway companies you are connected to so if there's there's an equation in the rule book that 
you can take a look at. But basically, if you're connected to a lot of train stations and you've got big machines, then you could be making a lot of money. So to translate that to train speak, they're trains with a fixed revenue and you'll get paid your home station value multiplied by the counter companies that connect into you. Nice simple formula. As the game goes on, the costs of operating go up as the tax man dips into your pocket or whatever's going on. Maybe regulation, that disgusting regulation. Looking after workers' rights, how outrageous. Maybe that comes in, but they're not dependent on a decent map. They're dependent on a decent network up until a very base point. Oh, do I connect to that company at all? Yes or no. They don't care about the efficiency of, oh, I can run free trains and get these routes here, there and the other, and I pick up these doinks with my express. They're very much a binary state check. So if the map turns to dog toffee because people are laying rubbish track, the mining companies really do not care. Well, they do care a certain amount because they obviously want to be connected to as many different companies as possible, and it is possible for tiles to be tokened out so you can't reach another company i'm talking in very broad brush terms here for basis of two experiences but each of those mining companies looks like it's fit to hit two maybe three companies bear in mind the stations in this game for um, the company homes can only host one token so you're not going to be able to shoot past one of those anyway you've got three legs on the tile uh, the mining heads as they're called only have three exits so the most you're ever going to hit is three companies you're all but guaranteed to hit two companies bear in mind the mines themselves are decent revenue locations for companies running through them you know the normal railway companies so companies are incentivized to hit you anyway the point i'm making is the mining companies don't care as much about a healthy route laden map as much as the train companies yes i, I agree with that and something Greg suggested was that the train companies may have to build well together to have end-game runs that compete with the late-game mining machines. But, of course, that might be circumstantial. I guess that all depends on the player setup, who owns which company, who's down to benefit from good routes, and whether creating absolute alphabetty railway spaghetti, i.e. bad routes, is to the benefit of those players holding the mining companies or not. And you spoke of the pit value. The home tile for a mine will upgrade automatically depending on the machine it has. Oh, we have a term for that, Joe. It's auto-magically. Special effect here. Dinkle, 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 dinkle. Carry on. Well, someone has to pick up the tile and put it on. Well, I, I guess that's true. <laughs> but if everyone closes their eyes... <laughs> I apologise for disrupting you, Joe. Carry on. <laughs> the mine is more attractive if it has better machines, and the rail companies will want to reach that hex because as the machines are improved, and so does that tile. But the only way to improve the machines is to eat through the locomotives on the other side of those cars. So we have meshing incentives. You're not playing two separate games here. Something interesting about mining companies versus train companies, mining machines are cheaper than trains, but there's one more rusting event in the game for mining machines than there are for trains. So although the seemingly the mine companies are more fit to snatch opportunistic trains, they will in fact have to spend more money total, seems to be the vibe. I hadn't noticed that, so 
well done, Craig. It's, it might be because I haven't actually run a mining company yet after two games. It might be. You haven't looked at that part of the spreadsheet, Joe. It's just like a big old fog of war section to you. Oh, I haven't looked that way. I know. Uh, you know what? I was really annoyed because I went away. I went to get a drink and I came back and everyone was shouting, who put that M? Who put that M in the spreadsheet? And I wasn't even at the computer and everyone blamed me. I did not put that M in the spreadsheet. I don't even remember that event, Joe. You're not bitter at all, are you? It wasn't me! It wasn't me! I did everything correctly on that spreadsheet, and someone else pressed M right in the middle of one of the cells that I happened to be using on my turn. It, uh, anyway, I think it was you, Craig. Joe gives the spreadsheet a M out of 10. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the mining companies are cool. I've got no qualms with that. It feels like a kind of, you know, the whole goods train thing. You get in a Lonnie game or the odd Lonnie game. Like having a deck with cards that are double-sided with slightly different costs. This feels like a nice kind of expansion of that. It plays how I'd imagine a simplified Hearts Barn would, maybe. Yeah, I think so. It does feel quite fresh to play a game with something which works a little bit differently. Yes, it doesn't throw the whole thing out of the 18xx genre in the way that 18 Lilliput kind of does. I'm being facetious, sorry guys. No, I don't, I don't hate it, please! The funny thing is, you had such a barrage of complaints about your 18 Lilliput first impressions episode, but everyone soon realised that you were right, Craig. You were right. And 18 Lilliput is a little bit rubbish. It's amazing how you can get a consensus of opinion that agrees with yours if you're willing to make a load of ghost accounts. <laughs> oh, okay. Nobody in that train game group's real, Joe. It's all me just trying to set the background, say, finally agree with me on 18 Lilliput, and then they'll never contribute again. Did you think you've actually met Andrew Norman? No, mate. No. No, no. no that was me in a suit. Ah. Uh, well, how about John Kant, the, uh, the admin of that? Facebook group. You're not him, are you? I am. Oh, man. I... You know, it was hard work doing that podcast by myself. <laughs> and I saw the two two of them in the same room. Mirrors, mate. Mirrors. It's all mirrors. I'm now, for some reason, picturing you having sucked out their innards and wearing their skin like a pair of tights. <laughs> I have no idea how much of that makes the final cut. All good fun. So, it still feels very much like an 18xx game, right? This doesn't feel like some wonky weird thing that goes, oh, actually, it's all about the mines. Although the mines are powerful. I mean, in the sense that not having been dependent on good map play is positive. Being able to chew through the train ranks at a pace slightly quicker than the other people is a thing worth noting. But I don't feel like I'm playing some lopsided game where the trains are an afterthought. Is there an equal number of each? That seems like something we need to know. Let me have a let me consult the rule book. That is something we probably sh- should know if we're talking about it in some kind of authority. Well, Joe, I have a one note for this. I have a one note tells me such things i can hear the the keyboard tapping in the background there are in fact four railway companies Mm -hmm. and three mining companies there you go it's worth mentioning actually that the mining companies also lay track so it's not like they're completely alien to the world of 18xx they are laying some track because they want to connect to the other railways and the railway companies there's not a whole heap to say there in terms of the way they operate there's there's some unique wrinkles where they only have one normal station token but they have tokens that could be laid on towns or small stations uh, they have a couple of those they're nice and cheap and those small stations are worth less than the big stations but they're the only place where the token war happens yeah the the only big station marker you have is your home station and so you cannot lay a, a, a station in a city anywhere else on the board indeed in fact you can't even get through one it's a baltimore for all intents and purposes should we talk about the track let's talk about the track because that is for me more interesting okay we have halts we have towns and we have cities and it's a very difficult track 
There are no branching tractiles, to give an example. There isn't the straight with the bendy bit. What do you call that? What's the official name for that? Oh, that's the bendy bit with a straight. Yeah, oh, yeah. So once you place your direction with the yellow tile, there's no changing your mind. Oh, actually, I should go that way instead. Once fixed, there's no real way of going back. It's very difficult to tactically shift around. To reroute. Yes, it felt very 1862, that. There's a very big degree of commitment to track here. Because the tile set feels quite tight... I mean, the only place you're junctioning is at... It's not even at halts. You're only junctioning at towns. Towns, yeah. And mineheads. That's it. Like you could say your home station as well, but that doesn't feel like a routine thing. That just feels like I now throw another leg off somewhere and I'll start building that way. Any track must be connected to your station markers, and there are a fair few tiles in the tile set which have two disconnected pieces of track. So if you're thinking, oh, I can upgrade this, well, you can't actually, because this little bit of track goes nowhere and that's not allowed. Yeah, it uses the 18GB style. I mean, I know it's an earlier progenitor to it, but it's the earliest we reference it in a podcast, so I'm going with that. And if you don't like it, oh, I'm sorry. It uses the 18GB. You don't like 18GB? That's been covered. No, Dave, I don't mind it now. I've warmed on it, actually. I've warmed on it as I've matured. I've warmed on 18GB. But that's something for another episode, Joe. Craig has warmed on it while everyone else has cooled on 18 Lilliput. <laughs> I could be wrong more often than I'm right. It's fine. The interesting thing about the double hawk tiles, they're very similar to the double O tiles in other Australian games, right? Hmm. I'm looking at them now and I'm thinking those are basically just double O's but with halts on. But the other thing about the restrictive tile lane that I'm sort of kind of want to reiterate, if you can't access the new bit of track on the tile, you may not lay it. Yeah, that is what I said. Yeah, which is just hard. <laughs> I just, I'm like, that's fine. It's fine. It's just hard work though. They're like, a pain in the ass. That's what they are. I think we placed some of the tiles illegally and then shouted at ourselves like an we, operating round later. We... In, oh, our, in, in our first game, you were the main culprit. In the second game, it was definitely me when I realised I, I, could, I couldn't this go is a bloody fi- This is a bloody fiction. I'll have you know, this is a fiction. It probably happened. It's fine. It did happen. Hey, I won that first game. Ah, but the tiles were laid wrong, Joe, so was it really a victory? <laughs> no, actually, probably more representative of my play style is the second game, in which I built directly to an off-board, which strangely is right in the middle of the board, thinking that I could go through it for some bizarre lapse of brain. And as I spoke to earlier, you can't suddenly change your mind where you're going and therefore I had completely hemmed myself in at the top of the map, unable to get anywhere. Or I, if I could get anywhere, it was through some harsh terrain. The terrain is interesting, actually, because the terrain costs, they reduce during the, the flow of the game, don't they? They do, which means the map opens up during the second half of the game, ostensibly. But I still found myself just avoiding that terrain on the, almost like a mechanical basis. Like, ugh, dirty terrain. That was so expensive earlier. You know, like when you mm. put your hand near a hot hob, and it's, you're still cautious even though it's cooled down. Like, I know, I know. That burnt me once. <laughs> I was sat at the top of the map just thinking, I can't go anywhere, I can't go anywhere. And then Greg said, oh, why don't you just build through that and than I did <laughs> and, and it wasn't so expensive towards the end of the game I know he has interviewed to replace you in the podcast and I am considering it he should he should definitely replace me it, it's just he's got a nice accent as well he has got a nice accent it would be a nice contrast to yours like a chainsaw going through wood <laughs> is that your accent or his? 
Anyway, oh, any, anyway, moving swiftly on. Who um, else can we insult? We we've got there. Are what fifty people in the whole of UK who play eighteen XX, and we're insulting them one by one. I'm doing it on the basis of longest range out, least likely to meet for play. I'll start by insulting them, and I'll narrow the circle until by the time I'm sixty, I'll be a crotchety old eighteen XX game that nobody wants to play with. Otherwise known as the core demographic. But well. I'll tell you what. <laughs> I can't leave that in, can I? Oh, yeah. We do play with my wife sometimes. Well, 18 Lilliput does have a solo mode, so you could... <laughs> I'll, I'll be using those solo rules I was decrying so heavily. All right, so let's try and round this out, because I think this could be a nice snappy podcast in keeping of the original name of the podcast, The Train Rush. Oh, so, hang on. A- nope, we're rushing. One more thing. Go on. I mentioned earlier that you can be president with just a single share. Well, that does mean in this game that every single investment in a company is a liability and demands risk assessment and priority management. There's no, oh, I can only buy one single share and I'm safe. In 18 Man, you're never safe. 18 Man sells all super stock for 20 pounds a pop. Drops the president to Junkie Joe Manx, who takes the cash and makes a swift getaway. Leaving crazy chameleon Craig the remaining shareholder. High and dry, tied up by his heel and hanging. The devastated company shares scattered, amber underneath the Market Square street lamp. Next morning, dressed again in a neatly ironed suit and necktie, businessman Greg gaily repurchases all four dense shares for a song at six pounds each. None of which contribute towards his common certificate limit. All in a day's work, he thinks, and shoots a cheeky wink at you, the audience of the train rush. And that's enough of that. I'm not sure why Greg hired Mark from the gaming moguls to narrate his life like that. This episode has all been a bit weird. I think it's too late to change the entire tone of the podcast. Should we end this thing, then? I feel like this is an... I don't want to say advanced. I don't want to say intermediate. I want to say advanced immediate or intermediate plus. I'm not sure which is more universally accepted as the term. Short-running 18xx game. So something you can play on a school night, but probably not something you want to play until you've played a few other titles and you fancy a bit of brain burn. This isn't something where you can kind of use set patterns to not perform abominably. I can kind of coast through an 1830er like now. I won't win, necessarily, but I won't distort the game or make a fool of myself kind of using a set of heuristics that may or may not apply to that game instance but they'll get me through with this I always felt like I was having to think quite intensely about what I was doing through every step except taking loans you should always take loans yeah I'd say it's a crazy little game quite a big leap away from the 1830 rule set I would call it a cabot do you know what a cabot is you know I don't, Joe. You have to embarrass me with this nonsense. Okay. Well, I'm the colour commentator. I'm not expected to know anything. I'm not Joe Rogan. Joseph Train of Castle Douglas, Galloway in Scotland. He visited the Isle of Man and he wrote a book, an historical and statistical account of the Isle of Man from the earliest times to the present date with a view of its ancient laws, peculiar customs and popular superstitions. It's published in 1845 and he wrote about the Manx Cat. My observations on the structure and habits of the specimen in my possession leave little doubt in my mind of it being a mule, a cross between the female cat and the buck rabbit. Craig, as you know, being a man of biology, scientific study has determined that such a hybrid is genetically impossible, and the Manx cat that lives on the Isle of Man is not a cabbit. But 18 Man does feel remarkably different 
it does feel like two games jammed together and it feels particularly different in comparison to any shorter 18x games i've played and i think in some ways it feels a bit manufactured like sometimes the different mechanisms are bolted together in a way that feels slightly unnatural that's just the shares mostly right or do you feel that way about the track as well i guess the track restrictions feel a little bit gamery maybe but carry on i think you've got a script you promised me he promised me you did <laughs> no preparation whatsoever he said just a casual recording craig we're just hey, gonna I play t- it twice casual chat about it he's got he's got freaking war and peace at the end Well, I did tell you I did my research on the cats. It seems to work very well, basically. It feels finished. It feels like it really works. And also, I'm quite excited to show other people this game because it's a school night game which isn't 1889 or 1836 junior this is a short game that has a lot of weird things glued together to make it remarkably different i think this is a lesser spotted weird but probably good there's this whole thing about we were debating previously about we're attracted to games that are interesting and sometimes interesting isn't the same as good this does feel like one that has really got the potential to be good it's not just interesting there's a mix of cool stuff i happen to like but actually it's a broken penny farthing with an anti-aircraft turret on the top this is kind of like weird and functional and like you say it feels finished it's got the company ordering of 1849 and the share density game from 1849 it's got a pseudo mine type thing a la hearts barn it's got the limited subset of privates from 18 islands and it's got a weird capitalization model from one of the wolfram games i forget which one where shares in the bank pool pay yet you it's kind of incremental capitalization so it's all strange and not that many bits really but no one's put that together yet and when you whack it in the box with loans as a catch-up mechanism and debts to pay off and to balance and i think maybe the spreadsheet made that too visible i think that whole oh you've messed up on the debt equation and you haven't quite got it right and now you owe 10 per pound of debt you didn't pay at the end of the game i could see that happening without a spreadsheet that feels like a very real material possibility, adding risk to those loans. But with a spreadsheet, it was just too easy to forecast what your liabilities were and to make sure that you didn't screw the pooch. Or the Manx cat. Is it a cat? We thought we discussed it's a rabbit. I was only half listening. No, it's definitely a cat. And Joseph Train is completely wrong. It's just a cat without a tail. You sure it's not a giraffe that's got a stretched neck over time, a la Gregorian biology? It's, you know, its tail's tucked up its bum. What is it with bums in this podcast, right? So... We've played essentially a pre-release type prototype thing. Of course, it's subject to change, even though we feel like it's very finished. But like you, I am keen to put this in front of people. The question I have, though, Joe, you say about it being game night. Now, I've been down to your game club and... After we've gone through the ritual of putting the red carpet out for me and everybody buying me a drink, there's not a whole heap of time left for gaming, you know, circa two and a half hours. Do you think your group is going to get through this in that amount of time? And they know, I'm not trying to offend them. I just think that this feels like a two and a half hour game for people who really know their train onions. Onions being a key part of a train. If you are train onion adjacent, I feel like this one could take like three or four hours. I think you need to come into this game with a certain amount of experience and I don't mind you offending all of those people at the club. I'd say that this game feels like a a crazy little machine but it's well oiled and I think once the players have lubricated themselves enough... Oh come on! You can't do that Joe! (laughs) 
and, and we're done. We're done. There you go. That's the last podcast, folks. I can't work like this. Once the players have read the operator's manual, was, was what you could have worked with? Jesus Christ. I don't think prayers will save us now, Craig. <laughs> Once everyone is up to speed, I think 18-man could be a saviour to us all. It's a game... Maybe for newish players, which could provide a glimpse into the extended weird world of 18xx, showcasing how these train games aren't just the same set of rules on different maps, at the same time offering more experienced players a new and different challenge before getting to bed at a reasonable hour. It's a good night for me. It's a good night for me. And so that ends another amazing adventure. Tune in next week for another episode of... The Incredible 18 Man. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, you can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. You can engage with us via pictures using Instagram, the underscore train underscore rush. You can contact us on Facebook, search for The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com. If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Thank you for listening. In the spirit of all good superhero movies, I thought we would give you a post-credit Easter egg type thing, if you will. Also, I thought this episode was far too relentlessly positive, so wanted to offer a reflection over time. I guess I had some concerns about this game in so much as the tile set seems so restrictive as to limit player expression to the realms of don't screw up as opposed to providing players with the opportunity to do something clever. The other area where I may have been a little bit too uh, positive, if you will, was the balancing on mines versus trains. Mining was in fact a dominant strategy in both the games we played. The removal of dependency on the track state seemingly making mines very good indeed. To the point where Mr Scrivens himself is making some adjustments there. So, although I am still very positive about this game, in terms of the brief and the parts that went into it, I'm somewhat less confident that what we've played is anywhere near a final version. But you know what? That just sets us up for the sequel. Thanks for joining us.